Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. So, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. So glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. Glad you're here. Last week was pretty cool. We got to ordain Pastor Doug, which was fantastic. And then he got to preach God's Word, which was even more fantastic. And somewhere around that level of fantastic, there were some cupcakes afterwards, which were amazing. Just so you know, I only had one at a time. So I thought I did pretty well. So uh, Pastor John, as a reminder, will be here in two weeks. He will be preaching the first. Yeah. Really, really looking forward to that. And I know he is too. Um, Keep praying for him. Traveling mercies. But we will see them in two weeks. And I am thrilled that they will be here soon. So pretty excited about that. Um, I think I covered all the basics so we can jump in. So I, I, I realize I need a name for sometimes when I talk um, on certain messages. And so I think this is going to be one of those what I would like to call a seatbelt sermon. So buckle up because we're going we're gonna to go on a wild ride this morning. Is that okay with you guys? I'm really excited about um, what the Lord has for you and for me this morning. So, um, oh, I did want to mention... Um, Pastor Doug and his wife and some of the youth leaders and our youth, many of them are up the hill. They might be on their way down sometime this afternoon, I think. So uh, overwhelmed by how gracious this church was um, for their ordination. And, and so I just wanted to say on behalf of them, thank you so much as a church body for loving them so well. They, they just felt so honored, both Doug and Kelly and their family, extended family. Um, so you guys did an amazing job. I'm not surprised, but I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of them for just loving and encouraging them so well. They, they were overwhelmed um, in, in a good way. So, Saturday evening post, October 16, 1943. It's a few years ago. There was an article in there called Pentagon and Pentecost. Interesting. Pentagon and Pentecost. In the Saturday Evening Post, October 16, 1943, starts off this way. The Pentagon, which completed construction on January 15, 1943, stands in Arlington, Virginia, on the fringe of our nation's capital. It is one of the largest and most famous buildings in the world, and construction of this amazing five-faced and five-story building was completed in just 16 months, but it took nearly 15,000 workers to complete this project. The city in itself covers about 42 acres of ground with an additional 120 acres of lawn to mow. Interesting. It houses nearly 40,000 people and over, over 10,000 vehicles. The inconceivable dimensions of the huge building are even more impressive when one is reminded that the Queen Mary, the Empire State Building, and the Washington Monument could actually fit within the walls of this structure. The Pentagon contains 34 acres of floor space and 17 and one-half miles of walkable corridors, which Barbara Thompson, by the way, told me she went on a tour of the Pentagon, and for the entire tour, the tour guide walked backwards. I thought that was fascinating. She goes, I don't know how they did it. Never bumped into a person the whole, t- whole tour. So if you've been on a Pentagon tour, I don't know if that's true, but that's what Barbara Thompson told me. Anyway, 17, ha- 17 and a half miles of corridors. Despite its enormous size, the Pentagon is said to be exceedingly well-managed. Since 1943... 200 telephone operators, which I think is pretty cute, handle more than 350,000 calls a day. There are anywhere from 10 to 12 tons of waste paper salvaged every 24 hours. I hope they went paperless. Defense of the Western world is planned and patrolled from the Pentagon. 
It is an intricate and guarded communication center. Thus, the Pentagon is far more than an incomprehensible building housing an amazing assortment of personnel. It is a symbol of power. There is an enormous contrast between the pretentiousness of the Pentagon and that anonymous place in Jerusalem where early believers received the Holy Spirit. The Pentagon speaks of preparedness and physical power. Pentecost speaks of personal faith and spiritual power. Can I get an amen? The Pentagon is primarily identified with the strength and well-being of America. Pentecost speaks of the transforming and saving power of the person of Galilee who came that the world might have life and peace and hope. The Pentagon represents defense. Pentecost represents our ultimate destiny. One majors in protection while the other majors in the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are embarking on this morning. I'm so excited. Pentagon or Pentecost? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate destiny rests in the hands of this person, this Jesus, this Messiah, and this Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning, Lord, and tomorrow and the next day. We love you and we thank you for your word. And we pray, oh God, that it would penetrate where it needs to penetrate this morning. In Jesus' name, and we all said, I want to do a little review. We did this a couple weeks ago. We skipped last week because Doug was preaching. So I wanted to hit some of the review parts again, add a few things, and then we're going to jump into the first 13 verses of the book of Mark chapter 1. All right? So that's the plan. Review. Matthew. What was Matthew? We want to look at the four Gospels, right? Mark is one of the four Gospels. Matthew is about Jesus the Messiah. It focuses on Jesus the Messiah. Special emphasis of Matthew is that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah as foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament repeatedly throughout his Gospel. Matthew has Jewish readers, a Jewish audience in mind. Jewish civilization and culture had been built around their scriptures. So Matthew appeals to the scriptures. Makes sense. Mark focuses on Jesus the wonderful or Jesus the powerful. The special emphasis of Mark is on the superhuman power of Christ, which demonstrates his deity by the miracles that he performs. Mark relates more miracles of Jesus than any of the other three gospels, even though it's the shortest gospel of the four. Mark focuses more on what Jesus did than on what Jesus said. Mark has Roman Gentile readers in mind as opposed to Matthew who had Jewish readers in mind. Roman civilization, who Mark's audience was, they gloried in the idea of government and power. And so Mark calls particular attention to the miracles of Jesus as exhibiting his superhuman power. That would resonate for a Roman culture. Luke focuses on Jesus, the Son of Man. Special emphasis of Luke is on Jesus' humanity. Luke features Jesus' kindness toward the weak, the suffering, and the outcast. Luke has Greek Gentile readers in mind. Greek civilization represented culture and philosophy and wisdom and reason and beauty and education. Therefore, to appeal to the thoughtful, cultured, and philosophic Greek mind, Luke shows us the glorious beauty and perfection of Jesus the ideal universal man. And lastly, the book of John, the Gospel of John, focuses on Jesus, the Son of God. So Luke's the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, is John's focus. So he focuses on the deity of Jesus, more about what Jesus said than on what Jesus did. The primary intent of John's Gospel is evangelism, confronting you and I with what are we going to do with this person who came this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah. And John also has Greek Gentile readers in mind. 
to wrap up those four gospel components of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, turn to Romans chapter 1. Chapter 1, 1 through 6. Real quick. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 6. And you'll see all four components of the four gospels in these six verses. Romans 1, starting at verse 1. Paul who's writing this, is a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called also as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the messianic portion that Matthew focuses on. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So that focuses on Jesus as the Son of Man. Verse 4, who was declared the Son of God, that's John, with power, that's Mark, by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom you and I have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the world for his name's sake, because that's who you and I are called of Jesus Christ. The great recap of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is found in Romans 1. So, a few other things by way of review. Some of the characteristics of the book of Mark that are different from the other three Gospels. As mentioned two weeks ago, the Gospel message is neither a discussion nor a debate. It's an announcement. The Gospel message is not a discussion. It's not a debate. It's an announcement. And sometimes people just don't like that announcement. I get it. Mark wastes very little time giving that announcement. When you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement. He announces that Christ is here. And then he moves right into the ministry of John the Baptist. And then he moves right into Jesus coming from Nazareth, all in the first couple of verses, without any mention of Jesus' earlier years. The main characteristic of the gospel of Mark, as mentioned, is action. The word immediately, which we will read twice in these first 13 verses, the word immediately or straightway is used 41 times, 41 times in the book of Mark and only 12 times in the rest of the entire New Testament. So Mark moves very rapidly. So the gospel moves at a fast pace and it shifts from scene to scene with rarely a pause. As mentioned, by length, the gospel of Mark is shorter than the other three and appears that it is meant to be read in, in one sitting, which I encouraged us to do if we had the time. And a number of people did that in the first couple services. Did anybody get a chance to read the entire book of Mark in one sitting? Did anybody get half? That's good. It's tough to do. I would still encourage you to do that if you have the time. We're going to be in Mark for a while, so if you have the chance, try to read the book of Mark all in one sitting. Let me give you a real quick summary of the book of Mark. Mark presents Jesus as the mighty Christ, the Son of God who exercises extraordinary authority to overcome the forces of Satan, sin, and disease. This powerful Messiah has not come to conquer Roman legions, but to suffer and die as the servant of the Lord and to pay the ransom for our sins. Wow. The theme of the book of Mark could be found in Mark 10, verse 45, which will be on the screen. For even... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We can chew on that verse all year for two reasons. To understand who he is and how we are to be. Mark's action-packed gospel was written at a time when allegiance to Jesus could cost 
a person everything. It could cost them their family, their friends, their possessions, even their very life. In the context of growing opposition from the Roman government and from society in general, Mark calls God's people to follow the example of Jesus who remained faithful to God no matter what the cost. Some key themes. We're going to post, there's five key themes in, in the book of Mark that I want to hit on real quick and then we'll, we'll see some verses and then we're going to jump into verses 1 through 13. The gospel is a theme. The kingdom of God, Jesus as the authoritative Christ and Son of God, Jesus as the servant, and then a call for you and I to be cross-bearing disciples of His. Let's look at the first one, the gospel. In verse 1 it says, the beginning of the gospel. It's the good news of salvation promised by Isaiah. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. And what did he say? Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, John the Baptist, who will prepare your way and my way. John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Wouldn't you think that's important for us to make way and make ready the way of the Lord? You better believe it. So, that's one theme is the gospel. The second is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the content of the gospel. What the gospel is the good news. What's the content of the good news? The content of the gospel is the kingdom or the reign of God through his son Jesus Christ. That's the content of the gospel. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 to 15. This is the second theme. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee preaching and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not just that the gospel's here. The gospel is about the kingdom. It's at hand. So we are to repent and believe in the gospel. That's the second thing. The third thing is Jesus, the authoritative Christ and Son of God. Jesus' authority in teaching and healing confirms that he is indeed the mighty Messiah. <clears throat> the climax of this reality comes in Mark chapter 15. You can turn there when the centurion at the foot of the cross recognizes Jesus through his suffering. Interestingly enough, that he is indeed the Son of God. Turn to Mark 15. We're going to look at verse 39. Fascinating to me. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last, interesting, said, wow, truly this man was the Son of God. He's probably seen many men die before through crucifixion. <clears throat> Recognizes the way Christ died and says, this is the Son of God. Remarkable. Remarkable. But if that's not enough to declare that this is the, truly the Son of God, a centurion saying that, let's go back to Mark chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, 9, 10, and 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized. Immediately, there's one of the immediately words, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Hmm. Verse 11. <coughs> Excuse me. And a voice came out of the heavens, and said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. That's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. We clearly have the authoritative Christ and the Son of God in our midst. Fourth, Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Although Jesus is clearly the mighty Messiah and Son of God, his role at his first coming was not to conquer, but to suffer. Interesting. And to die as the righteous servant of the Lord. 
Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32, 33, and 34. Jesus is both authoritative and the servant. Wow. Mark 10:32 They were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful and he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was about to happen. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Sad Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. Wow. This is who was in front of us. The fifth thing is our call, church, for cross-bearing discipleship. True disciples of Jesus are not to seek honor and power. It's not what Jesus was after as we witness, as we witness about him when we read about him in scriptures. But our role is to take up our cross and follow our master through sacrifice and suffering. That's our call. In A.D. 64, when this was being written, when the Gospel of Mark was being written, in A.D. 64, a devastating fire broke out in Rome. More than half the city was destroyed, and the word on the street was that it was the emperor, Emperor Nero, that was the one who started the fire. So in order to squelch this rumor and get attention off of himself, he blamed the Christians, which began a massive persecution against the Christian church. Mark wrote precisely during this time and also intended his book to help guide you and I and support you and I, fellow Christians, in this time of crisis. The way of the cross for Jesus' disciples was modeled after the way of the cross for Jesus himself. Turn to Mark 10, verse 41 to 45. I think we were just in 10. Stay in 10. Yeah, Mark 10, 41 to 45. So James and John were trying to figure out which one was greater. And so the other ones were upset. And Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles outside of the church family lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But church, it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even I, even the Son of Man, Jesus says, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Wow, that's a tall order. It's a tall order. Serious, serious order as well. Let's read Mark 1, 1 through 13. Let's read Mark 1, 1 through 13. And when we're done, we're going to focus on three things, which I'll get to in a second. Let's start at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, so much so that I am not even fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, church. The baptism of Jesus is next. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice saying, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And again, the word immediately and immediately the spirit impelled him to go out to the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus is on the scene. We're going to look at three things in these 13 verses. We're going to talk about the identification of the Messiah. He's being identified here. He's being presented to us by Mark. Right? So he's identifying the Messiah. And then John the Baptist is the preparation of John the Baptist as the messenger of this Christ. So the preparation of John as the messenger. And then who Jesus is, Jesus came to alter the masses. And I declare that that's exactly what he's done. That Jesus has come to alter our lives forever. First thing, identification of the Messiah. In verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a lot of stuff there. So I want to focus on two things. When we talk about the identification of the Messiah, we're going to talk about the titles that he's given in the first couple verses and the testimonies about him. Okay? The titles and the testimonies. So, essentially what Mark wants us to know through his titles and through his testimonies is this. Mark is saying, I want you to know who he is and why we should have seen him coming. Does it make sense? Who is he and why we should have seen him coming? That's what Mark wants us to know. So first of all, let's get into the titles. Before we get into the two titles of Jesus mentioned here, let's just talk about his name. Jesus is his name. Christ is the title. Son of God is the title. So let's talk about his name first. The the name of Jesus, which in the Hebrew is Yeshua, where we get the name Joshua, Does anybody know what the meaning of the name Jesus is? Anybody? The Lord saves. That's the meaning of the name Jesus. Matthew, in in chapter 1, verse 21, when he opens up his gospel, he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Sins. Death. Yes. So his name means saves, right? So, understanding who Jesus is, a lot is in a name. There's two titles he's given. Here in in Mark, he's called Jesus the Christ. Or, we also know him as Jesus the Messiah. Christ is Greek, from the Greek is Christos, or in the Hebrew is Messiah. It's the same word. Greek, Christos, Hebrew, Messiah mean the same thing. Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, same thing. Okay? What does that mean? What does the Christ or the Messiah mean? Does anybody know that? The anointed one. The anointed one. The Christ or the Messiah means the same thing, that he was anointed. It means anointed one or anointed king. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil to demonstrate that they were commissioned by God for a special task. This is a special task for sure. Son of God is what he's also called. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Son of God is also an Old Testament term. It's a messianic and royal kingly title. It ties in with King David. We're not going to go there. Not enough time. But this title also, Son of God, also displays Jesus' relationship with God. Why? He spoke the word of God always. He obeyed the will of God always. And like God, he had the authority to forgive sins. Wow. So that's the title, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Now the testimonies of Jesus. What are the testimonies? Just in the book of Mark, just in the first couple verses, we have Mark himself in A.D. 65-ish testifying or giving a testimony about Jesus. Look in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, right? You see that in verse 2? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then it starts off with the word behold. Look in your Bibles. There should be a little letter next to the word behold. What does that reference? There should be a little letter next to the word behold. What does it reference? Who? Anybody got it? Somebody's got to have it. Malachi, M-A-L? Does anybody see where it says Malachi? Right? So it says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then it quotes Malachi. Well, did the Bible writers mess that up? What happened was Malachi in 400 B.C., piggybacked on something which comes from verse 3 from Isaiah the prophet. So he adds to Isaiah's prophecy about Christ from 700 B.C., right? So Malachi talks about him 400 years prior to his arrival, and uh, Isaiah talked about him 700 years prior to his arrival. So in Malachi 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. But when you go to Isaiah, that's verse 3. And Isaiah says, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. And so all Malachi's uh, doing is he's referencing Isaiah, adds his verse to it, and that's what Mark quotes. Because he's adding uh, testimonies for us to understand, this is Jesus, this is that guy. I'm talking about him, Malachi talked about him 400 years ago, and Isaiah talked about him 700 years ago. And then we have John the Baptist talking about him as well. And then we see the Holy Spirit, boom, come down on him. And then we hear this voice from heaven, oh my goodness, this is, this is the guy. This is my son. So Mark wants us to get who he is. And so he gives us his titles and he gives us his testimony so that we don't have any doubt about who this Jesus is. Here's what Mark's telling us. Mark is saying, in summary, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus who is both the Christ and the Son of God that you and I were told about and written about 400 years ago. Oh, and also 700 years ago that John the Baptist is also reminding us about whom the Holy Spirit descended upon and whom the voice from heaven cried out, this is my son. Okay, I think I got it. A quick thought or note about the gospel. What did we say gospel means? What does it mean, the gospel mean? The good news. It begs the question for me, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? There's got to be some bad news if you need to tell me about some good news. And this is where it gets tricky when we evangelize or try to share our faith is to let people know on some level there's bad news. It's called your sin and it leads to a very dark place that lasts a long time. And so the good news is you don't have to go there. And so the good news is we found the guy that can take us there. If the bad news is real, oh, and it's real, then we better be clear about the good news and who it is that can take us there. Does that make sense? A couple weeks ago, my back was hurting. That's bad news. The good news is, why don't you come up to me and say, oh, Pastor Mark, my doctor can help you. He's an eye doctor. Well, pure intentions, but that's the wrong guy. You're not really, I mean, right? That's not good news. It's good news for your eyes, but not for my back, right? Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Right after the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 
it's kind of this, this quandary we're in to always make sure that we understand the bad news so we really understand and appreciate the good news, right? Romans 3, starting at verse 9. Here's the bad news. What then? Are we better than they? Huh, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, which just means everybody, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Anybody depressed yet? Verse 17, And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How can that be? Verse 22. Here's the good news. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe. No distinction. We've all sinned and we all fall short. But verse 24. We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly on a piece of wood. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, There is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. That's it. This is the guy. So, that was the first thing we were going to cover. What did we call that? The identification of the Messiah. Number two, the preparation of the messenger, John the Baptist. We see, going back to Mark 1, we see in verses 2 and 3, where it says, Behold, I send a messenger. Verse 3, the voice, right? This is John the Baptist. The prophet that God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. On some level, this is a, this is a, a preaching God's word is an act of prophecy. It's, it's considered a prophetic position. And so that's all I'm trying to do is prepare a way for you and for I and for this church, for anybody who comes in here to prepare a way for Jesus in their lives. That's all my role is. In ancient times, before a king visited any part of his kingly realm, a messenger was sent before the king to prepare the way. Interesting. This included both repairing the roads and preparing the people. Isn't that cool? By calling the nation to repentance, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is essentially what John, is, John the Baptist is saying. The anointed one, the one that saves the world from its sins, the Christ, the Messiah, who just happens to be the Son of God, who Malachi spoke about 400 years ago, who Isaiah prophesied about 700 years ago, whom the Spirit descended upon and the Lord spoke from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son and whom all of us should have anticipated his arrival, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's here. This is important. He's here. How prepared were people in those days to encounter Jesus? More importantly, how prepared are you and I today? How prepared are you and I today to encounter Jesus? I propose, church, that every day we are presented with the realities of this Jesus. Every day. How well are we prepared to encounter Jesus every day? I also propose that Jesus oftentimes has little effect in our lives simply because we do not prepare ourselves for Him to do so. Every day. 
What does John the Baptist say about being prepared for Jesus? Look in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, John the Baptist, my messenger is going to become ahead of you, who will prepare your way, in verse 3, to do what? To make ready the way of the Lord. Your way needs to make way for the Lord. You need to prepare your way for His way and to make your paths straight like His paths are straight. It's a tall order. I think too often we walk down the path of Christianity with the hope and or the expectation that the Lord will walk down our path and adjust to our way. Oh, tis not to be. I would imagine that there are some here right now, heck, probably every one of us, that need to repent from that reality where we want God to line up with our way. And John the Baptist says, oh no, he's here to prepare your way to make ready the way of the Lord in your life and make his paths straight. We need to repent from that if that's us. We have not prepared the way of Christ in our lives. We have not made his path straight. We have not altered our way in subjection to his way. And so the saying goes, you need to straighten up. We hear that saying, right? You need to straighten up. That's what it says in verse 3. Make his path straight. What's interesting in verse 2, it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. That means in front of your face. And so sometimes spiritually, God gets in our face. God's like, I've got to get in your face because you need to straighten up. And that's what a messenger does. And so we have brothers and sisters in our lives when we come to church because sometimes God just needs to get in our face and we need to straighten up and make his path our path or make our path his path. Make sense? Interesting. Clearly, in order for us to make his path straight and our path align with his, we need the word of God. How else do we know what's straight? That's how we understand and identify his ways and his path. Perhaps that's the place that we need to start. I have here in my hands this whippy skippy handy manual to my overachieving Hyundai Tucson. I have not read it cover to cover yet. I haven't even started, nor do I intend to. But I trust that what's written in here is for the best intentions of my vehicle so that when it dies, it goes to heaven with me, right? That's how my Hyundai is supposed to function. I really like my car, right? Well, this is a car. It's a car. It's almost as thick as my Bible. It's insane. More pictures, which is good for a guy like me. No, I don't have many pictures in here. It's got pictures. It's a doggone manual to a car. You get the point, right? This This is how critical this thing is. This is how we get our ways aligned with his ways. Our lives are dependent upon it. Matthew Henry says this about John the Baptist. He said, in John's preaching and his baptizing, we see the beginning of the gospel doctrines and ordinances, which is forgiveness and the forgiveness of sins and repenting. Three things. One, he preached the remission of sins, which is the great gospel privilege that we enjoy. He showed people their need of it and that they were undone without it and that it might be obtained by all. Two, he preached repentance, that there must be a renovation of our hearts and a reformation of our lives, that we must forsake our sins and turn to God, and upon those terms and no other their sins should be forgiven. Repentance for the remission of sins was what the apostles were commissioned to preach to all the nations. Three, he preached Christ. He preached Christ and directed his hearers to expect, listen, to expect great things from him. I have great expectations this year. It's going to be my best year ever. I'll keep sharing that with you. This is going to be my best year ever. There's no doubt in my mind. 
I have great expectations of Christ. The preaching of Christ is pure gospel. And that is what John the Baptist's preaching was about. So great is Christ that John the Baptist, though one of the greatest that was born of women, the Bible says, thinks himself unworthy to be employed even in the most humble service of him, even to stoop down and untie his shoes. We are to expect great things from Christ. And that's what Mark wants us to know. And lastly, the alteration of the masses. The alteration of the masses. Jesus is what Mark is saying. Jesus, pause for dramatic effect. This King, this Messiah, this Christ, this Anointed One, this Savior, this Forgiver of Sins, this Son of Man and the Son of God, this Jesus who was empowered by the Holy Spirit and who empowers us with the Holy Spirit, Mark 1 says, has altered the masses, all of humanity, forever. He is indeed mightier than John the Baptist. He is indeed mightier than you or me. And like John, we too are unworthy and unfit to stoop down and untie his sandals. There is a worldwide disease that kills people globally every day and there's only one cure. The disease is called sin and the cure is called Jesus, the one who saves us from that disease. In closing, Mark presented Jesus to us in his gospel message nearly 2,000 years ago this was written. And it clearly requires a response. Clearly requires a response. Jesus, however, is still being presented to us today. And as always, it requires a response. How is Jesus being presented to you today? What about tomorrow? I'm doing it right now. Who's going to do it tomorrow? And then after Monday comes another day called Tuesday. Who's going to present Jesus to you then? And after Tuesday, another day is going to come, and it's going to be called Wednesday. And who's going to present Jesus to you on Wednesday? Is Jesus being presented to you today? Is he present in your life, or is he being ignored? What do you and what do I need to confess and repent of? He'll forgive us. That's the good news. That's fantastic. Where do you need to make his path straight in your life? Where is it a little crooked? He'll show you. He'll help you. Perhaps this year, 2016, can represent the year in your walk with the Lord that you choose to mark out a straight path for the Lord and repent of any path or paths that perhaps you've been on. It's going to be my best year ever. I'm off to a great start. I love you guys. I'm done. I'm going to pray real quick. Pastor Dave is going to come up with some distinguished guests, and, um, and we're going to close that way. So let me pray real briefly while you guys work your way up. Thank you. Lord, what a privilege to engage in your son. Lord, we want to respond well. Give us the power to do so, Lord. We can't do this on our own, Lord. That's why you gave us the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord. It's only through you and through your power that we can do your things and become your people and do it well. God, again, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for the gospel of God, and we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you so much.